Greetings and welcome to the SOCON Report podcast presented by Family Policy Alliance and Foundation. My name is Joseph Combe. I serve as the Director of Public Policy at Family Policy Alliance, or FPA, as we call it, and I'll be your host for this episode. Today we'll be talking about an issue within uh, the overall issue of the pro-life movement, and that is in vitro fertilization, or IVF. This has come suddenly and uh, quite strikingly into the news in the past week and a half or so uh, because of a recent Supreme Court ruling in the state Supreme Court of Alabama. We know many of our audience are trying to pay attention to this news and sort out the facts and the fiction. We at FPA are here to answer the tough questions and help equip you to talk about this issue, especially in light of this recent state Supreme Court ruling. I'm very privileged to have on the show a great guest from the state of Alabama to help us discuss this and help equip us to advocate for truth. Her name is Stephanie Smith. She is the president and CEO of Alabama Policy Institute. We are so lucky to have her on the show today because she's a very busy lady in light of this ruling. So Stephanie, please welcome to the show. Thank you for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. You are welcome. So um, we're so glad to have you and we're excited to talk about this topic that a lot of people are not excited to talk about. We at FPA are here to, to grab the bull by the horns and, uh, and ask the tough questions and answer them for our for our audience of Christians and social conservatives. So to start at the beginning, Stephanie, I wanna, I wanna make sure we clear the slate from the, from the ground up. I want you to tell us a little bit, because I think a lot of our audience may not be aware, what exactly is in vitro fertilization or IVF? How, how does that work? Sure, so IVF is a medical procedure um, for people who are struggling with fertility. And it's developed through the years, uh, you know, and, and has changed through the years. But the, the main focus of in vitro fertilization is the um, scientific creation and implementation of uh, an embryo. And so um, it, it's, it's, a, it's a donor um, kind of or organization. And then the, the clinics um, put together the sperm and the egg in a, in a, in a scientific way and then um, either implant um, those embryos uh, in, into the mother's uh, uterus or freeze those embryos and save them. And so the, the question, the moral questions that come up with that are many um, because the process has changed, it's developed, um, and, and also the fact that many of the embryos that are created are either sold, uh, used for research, or destroyed. And so there, there are many moral questions that come up um, with that specific process, but then also there are some moral questions and biblical questions that come up on um, what types of, of, of embryos are chosen for the, for the uh, process to be implanted, because there are some decision making that, that is done uh, both by the parents and by the medical professionals. And those decisions are moral decisions and then also pragmatic decisions that are being allowed in certain locations. Um, IVF patients are actually encouraged and allowed to um, choose the sex of their child. Um, there are some instances where they are able to choose the hair color uh, or eye color of, of their child or children. And then in addition, you know, there are always uh, circumstances where an embryo may or may not be chosen because of a possible indicator of a disability. And so plenty of moral questions come along with this process. And so they, the questions have really been brought to the forefront 
um, in the last several weeks in the state of Alabama because of this ruling. And those are the things that we're grappling with, with right now. Well, thank you. That's a great summary, Stephanie. I really appreciate it. And it's important to note that, that we as pro-lifers believe that life begins at the moment of conception, according to the word of God. And each of those fertilized embryos that are frozen is a unique human life, according to that definition that presents all those moral questions that you listed and more. And uh, the Alabama Supreme Court addressed them head on. They did not run, they took it on. And I want you to tell us about that. So this case that that um, was ruled on last week, the Alabama Supreme Court issued a 7-2 ruling and opinion in a dispute between parties named LePage versus Mobile, Mobile sorry, Infirmary Clinic Incorporated. So let's start with the background of the case, Stephanie. Who are the parties and what was the dispute involving? And let's, uh, many of our uh, audience members are, are attorneys and many are not. So we, we want to describe this in a way that they can understand. Tell us in a way that, that anybody can hear. Who, who are the parties and what was the dispute? Yeah, sure. So the parties um, were actual parents that were going through uh, the in vitro and had already been through the in vitro fertilization process in Mobile, Alabama. Um, there was an individual that came into that clinic, um, actually went into the, the freezer um, where embryos were being stored, um, picked up, physically picked up um, some of those embryos and then dropped them uh, because they were cold. And, and it, the level of freezing actually you know, burned this individual's hands. And so um, he dropped them and um, the embryos were destroyed. And so the case was actually the parents um, suing the clinic for the destruction of those embryos uh, for the loss of their children. And so it made its way through the courts and the Alabama Supreme Court um, ruled correctly, in our opinion, that those embryos were children and should be treated as children under our wrongful death statutes. And so that is what created kind of this firestorm of controversy um, because that was seen by the clinic um, as, a, as a substantive change um, or you know, sub substantive decision um, that had not been, they had not had that under consideration before um, with having embryos specifically treated as persons um, and as children under the wrongful death statute. And so that was the decision that was made. Um, and it, frankly, it, it, it was a surprise to many people, but welcomed by those of us in the pro-life community. Um, as you mentioned, you know, we believe that, um, that God is the creator and um, that, that every embryo that is created is a life and, and should be valued. And so uh, it was a welcome, it was a, a, a welcome decision um, by us, um, but their, the reaction to it has been obviously varied. And um, the reaction by the clinics, uh, there were three clinics in the state of Alabama that decided to pause uh, their IVF treatments and their IVF processes in reaction, in protection of themselves, in reaction to the ruling. And that created a crisis point for our legislature to act. Indeed, it did, and I want to I want to make sure we get into that. The uh, many implications of this, both for IVF clinics and for legislation that's recently being proposed, um, we want we want to talk about that. I just want to clarify for our audience. So, um, you had two sides arguing over whether um, what these embryos qualified as a life for the purpose of a wrongful death action. 
Um, I want to ask you, what, how did each side make their arguments that it either was a life or that it wasn't? And then what rule, how did the court uh, apply Alabama law and the Constitution to, that, to those arguments? Well, the interesting thing is that actually in the arguments, both sides were considering those embryos to be life. Um, there, there wasn't an either or. There wasn't the, the parents thought that they were life and then the, the clinic thought that they weren't life. Everyone agreed that they were life, um, which actually made the ruling more compelling. Um, the, the oral arguments are really interesting to watch if any of the viewers you know, are really interested in this subject. They were held at uh, the University of South Alabama campus. Our, our Supreme Court kind of travels around and does these, these uh, remote arguments so that people in the state can, can be a part of it. And that's where they were held, which is interesting because the University of South Alabama is actually in Mobile. And so, and this was the Mobile Clinic that was, that was involved in the case. But Tom Parker made really compelling biblical arguments in, in his statements. And then also uh, Justice Jay Mitchell was the one who in, in his concurrence really articulated that there was no question in anyone's mind on either side of the case of whether or not these embryos were actually living beings. Um, all sides and all of the justices agreed that these were living beings. And so that made the decision even more compelling. And then frankly, I think that it, it, it scared some folks um, because it was so strong uh, that they thought that the opposite reaction uh, needed to occur quickly. Indeed, it did, and I think uh, it's it's worth. I'd encourage our audience to just look at some of the poll quotes on that you all have posted on your website uh, about or from the actual Supreme Court opinion, because it makes very clear uh, that the court believes unborn life should be protected at all stage, regardless of location, regardless of dependency. All the members decided in the majority, which was seven members, agreed with that, and that's a powerful statement uh, of the culture of life that's in Alabama. I think because the state's jurists re reflect. Uh, the culture in their state, and it's a powerful testament to to your work at Alabama Policy Institute uh, that y'all have helped foster that culture of life. So I want to congratulate you on that, and um, it's a very it's a shining pro life decision, I think. But it does come with some new levels of very nuanced debate and implications, and I want us to get into that now. So um, I want to start with what exactly does this mean? for the future of IVF treatments and clinics in the state of Alabama. Right, if I could back up one step, one thing I didn't mention in your previous question, which is the state of Alabama has a constitutional amendment that was, that was passed uh, and, a, uh, and a statute that is arguably the strongest pro-life statute in the nation. Um, which was one of those, one of the trigger laws uh, after Dobbs. And so, uh, that has been part of this conversation as it relates to the ruling as well. And so our, our, immediate, um, our, our immediate response to the ruling was praise. Uh, and then the secondary response was, uh, frankly, a little bit of, of fear that this would create such a firestorm that um, there would be people in the legislative process that would try to attack either our constitutional amendment or our very strong pro-life statute. And that occurred almost immediately. Uh, it's being debated in the legislature right now. Um, but it looks to me like what's going to end up happening is what I would term a stopgap. Uh, the Alabama Policy Institute and some of our partners in the pro-life coalition 
uh, in the state of Alabama, put forth, uh, worked on drafting legislation um, over the last week or so, and, and put forth um, what was basically modeled after uh, the Louisiana statute that has been in place since the 1980s and is a very successful statute in, in, in the aim of continuing IVF treatments, but also protecting life at the same time and creating some parameters for the IVF clinics to make sure that not only are they um, part of creating life, but they're part of preserving life. And so that, was our, that has been our goal. Unfortunately, it looks like um, the stopgap measure uh, has more, more ammunition at this point um, because of that crisis point and the closures of the clinics. Um, but we are still continuing to work toward um, creating that statute modeled after the Louisiana legislation um, so that we might be the most pro-life state in, um, in, 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 from all directions, which would be um, really promoting families and the creation of families and the promotion of families. But we can do that simultaneously with protecting life. We sure can. I mean, that's why I want to follow up about those two pieces of legislation you mentioned. The Louisiana uh, or the, or the proposed law, it's modeled after a very successful Louisiana law um, and the stopgap measure. So start by telling us just a little more about the Louisiana law. I, was, I know it was uh, established in 1986 and it's been very successful. Um, what does it require and what is its policy ob objective? Yeah, I, I think that the, you know, I, I obviously wasn't involved in that, but from talking to folks in Louisiana and, and how it works, um, the state of Louisiana actually um, has more babies born through IPF than the state of Alabama does. And so uh, what they have done and what they have stood by, which is what we want to model our legislation um, behind, is that IVF is, is legal in the state of Louisiana. IVF would remain legal in the state of Alabama with the, with the provision that we are promoting, but it does add parameters. It, um, it, it indicates that um, because we are, we are, are pro-life oriented and a pro-life state, that we would want um, IVF clinics to have some parameters, to have some reasonable expectation of how many embryos are created and then also prohibit the um, the destruction, the intentional destruction of those embryos and also prohibit the sale um, or use of research um, for those embryos. And that, that's what we would like to see in, the, in Alabama as well. This is one of those areas um, that, frankly, the United States is behind a lot of uh, other countries uh, and, and then the international community for effectively regulating this industry. And um, it's one of those things that frankly, this has not been done well on a national or statewide basis. And so uh, modeling after the already successful Louisiana law, we feel like is the direction that we would like to go. And we would like to express to other states and other folks who are interested in this subject to uh, you know, use their use their legislation as a model because it has such a high success rate. Hey Amen. I appreciate that uh, that description of the Louisiana law because that is counterintuitive. That a law that puts these ethical restraints on the practice of IVF has somehow led to even more babies being born through IVF. You wouldn't think that's true, but it really has been. And I think that that speaks to the efficacy of the bill and achieving that policy objective of making sure 
IVF is still accessible while also putting some common sense ethical restrictions on it. And uh, that's encouraging to know that, that that's a way that that's something that Alabama could potentially adopt and it would help bring us in line with some of the other uh, countries in the world. Um, however, you're threatened though with what you call the stopgap measure, which sounds quite different. And uh, that seems like it has a bit more legs just at the present moment, hopefully that'll change. But just tell us a little bit more, what would the stopgap measure mean if, if passed? So it looks like the stopgap measure really is more of a protection of the clinics. The frustrating thing is that um, there are a lot of IVF patients and families who are actually advocating for the protection of the clinics, which I understand on a practical level, but that also is creating a situation to where if the clinics receive some sort of immunity, blanket immunity for these processes um, to allow them kind of business as usual, the frustrating part is that that means that the families and the unborn children um, who might be part of an accidental or intentional de destruction of um, those embryos and those, those unborn children would be left open um, to that kind of misuse or, or even death without having any sort of recourse. And so we are trying to communicate that uh, we are pro-life. The IVF community and the pro-life community don't have to be diametrically opposed. It is possible to be pro-life and pro-IVF. And it's a situation to where uh, we're trying to make sure that those who are uh, advocating for in vitro fertilization know that we are not opposed to them and that the pro-life community cannot, you know, it isn't, isn't diametrically opposed to the concept of IVF, but we are opposed to the intentional destruction of human life. And we have to remain faithful to that. I couldn't have said it better. It's excellent, Stephanie. It makes me grateful that you and your team are there to provide that, that nuanced, firm pro-life advocacy and a, very tumultuous time for your state. So um, we at FBA are praying for you and supporting you all however we can. Um, we've talked a lot about court decisions and policy in this show so far. And with the few minutes we have left, I wanna make sure we uh, address the day-to-day the -day concerns of our pro-life and social conservative audience that's listening or watching right now, wherever they are. This IVF, the reality is it's a complex issue. It's, it's not easy to talk about. It doesn't fit into one talking point. And I think as pro-life Christians and Americans, we we recognize that there are a lot of uh, people that have been born through IVF now, and uh, and that's an that's a it's an effort, it's a it's an infertility treatment with a lot of efficacy to it. We don't we want to acknowledge that, but we also want to talk about the unflinching pro life angle to this. So when our audience is talking about is advocating for pro life positions and pro life beliefs, when they're doing the on the ground pro life work, Stephanie, why don't you encourage our audience? How can they? How can they do this advocacy and stand for the truth of the sanctity of human life while also being unflinchingly graceful uh, for the people that have experienced infertility and gone through IVF treatments? How would you encourage them? Yeah, I mean, I actually lived that yesterday when uh, there was a uh, press conference and, and literally hundreds of either IVF patients or IVF uh, folks who were born through IVF that came to our state house yesterday. I'm a mother of seven. And so um, I think that identifying with people who um, are mothers, identifying with people who are pro-family and, and finding some common ground, understanding that it's a really emotionally charged issue and, and really finding common ground that we are all pro-family. We are all pro-child. Uh, it was wonderful, frankly, uh, even though we might be uh, on opposing sides or, or have different 
uh, policy objectives, specifically with this, this these two bills. It was wonderful seeing people with baby, with, you know, with with strollers and and carrying carrying infants and um, being a part of the legislative process. So I think finding common ground on it and not trying to be adversarial. Uh, it is not a black and white issue. It is it is very. It is nuanced, but the the thing that we have to make sure that we're doing is protecting life at all costs. We want to promote the creation of life by the Lord and, and the different techniques and, and abilities to do that in the, you know, 2024. But we also just need to make sure that we are staunchly pro-life and that we are protecting life at all costs, because we know that that's what the Lord has for us. That's what God word, God's word tells us to do. And we have to remain faithful to that first and foremost. I couldn't agree more, Stephanie. I appreciate um, all that you've said. I, I agree. And I'll just add as an encouragement to our audience that the Bible uh, commands us to imitate Christ, who was full of grace and truth. That's John 1, 14. Uh, the Christian that balances those two things together is an effective and winsome uh, winning Christian advocate and social conservative advocate. So I completely agree. That's so well said. Stephanie, this has been such a treat to have you on the show. I want to make sure our audience knows where they can connect with you and the Alabama Policy Institute. So tell us, where can they find you and uh, what programs uh, do you have and how can they support you? Yeah, I appreciate that. So uh, we're the Alabama Policy Institute. We're um, a pro-family organization located in Birmingham, Alabama, and we can be found uh, at alabamapolicy.org. We're also on all the social media, uh, Twitter or X or whatever we're calling it these days, uh, YouTube, uh, Instagram, Facebook, all the things. Please come follow us and, and join us and support us on this issue and many others. Indeed, whether whether you're Crimson Tide, Auburn, or you don't even live in Alabama, I encourage you to please follow, uh, follow and support Alabama Policy Institute and their great work. API is also a member of uh, a network of state-specific family policy councils, or FPCs, and the Family Policy Alliance, we nationally are honored to host and facilitate collaboration between this network. There are about 40 groups like, IP, like API around the country. Uh, if you want to find the group in your state, I encourage you to go to familypolicyalliance.com. In the top right-hand corner is a tab called Allies. If you click on that, there are lists and links to every state family policy council. So find yours and support it and get involved. Stephanie, thank you again for being with us. It was a true pleasure. And thanks to our audience for joining us. We just pray for grace and truth over you as you take a stand for the truth and the sanctity of life. Thank you for joining us on the SoCon Report podcast. We'll see you next time. Brought to you by Family Policy Alliance. Our vision is a nation where God is honored, religious freedom flourishes, families thrive, and life is cherished.